0: Welcome to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF. Good Saturday evening to you. I'm Jason Kong. The usual cast, as always, is here. We've got Cooper Linton with Transitions Life Care. Good evening to you, Cooper. Good evening, Jason. Thrilled to be here again. Excellent. And we've got the lovely Nicole Bruno with Transitions Guiding Lights. Hi, Nicole.
1: Hey, how are you?
0: I see you both have coffee in hand, ready to go for the night.
1: That's a positive.
0: That is a positive. Will
1: get us through the night.
0: That's right. Very good. (laughs) Well, Cooper, uh, let's get right into it. We've got a jam-packed show with some great guests, and we've got uh, two in the studio right now. Who do we have, and what are we going to be talking about?
2: So we're going to talk about something that, for some people, it makes them a little uncomfortable. What is this stuff? We're hearing these acronyms thrown around out in the healthcare system. Uh, we talk about advanced illness care, advanced illness management. We also talk about ACOs, because we can't make it through a show without having a conversation about acronyms. ACOs. Uh, ACO. ACO. Okay. So, Accountable Care Organization. And as opposed to me trying to explain that, we're, we have a couple of guests here who can talk about advanced illness care and accountable care organizations uh, with a really an eye toward how they enhance the care of our aging population and how they can enhance the experience of a caregiver who's trying to navigate uh, the challenges of chronic illness and and, uh, complex illness. And so we have two guests today. One of them is Debbie Huter. She's the Executive Director for the Wake Med Key Community Care. Uh, and we're going to let her explain what all that means in a moment. And we also have Lori Moore. And at this point, I'm not even going to try to explain Lori Moore's okay. title, um, but she is uh, involved with clinical clinical operations. Lori, can you explain the, your title?
3: Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, so this is Lori Moore. I'm the Senior Director of clinical operations for Evalent Health, uh, which is a data management and population health management that partners with companies across the nation to improve the quality of care and lower the cost of care uh, for beneficiaries in a geographic region. And so my role is to work with, with our team locally at WKCC or Wake Med Key Community Care to identify areas of opportunity for for the population that we serve and for the providers that we work with.
2: And so when you talk about enhancing care, and I, and I heard you throw two ideas out at the same time. One is improving the quality of care Yes. and reducing the cost of that. And I think sometimes there's a perception that better care must be more expensive care. But it sounds like maybe that's not the case.
3: So you're correct. That's not necessarily the case. So what we do is uh, we first start with uh, with looking at the population as a whole and determining where there are opportunities to to have impact. And so we look for opportunities such as patients with certain certain illnesses or um, areas where we have particularly high costs, and we develop initiatives and programs to address those those issues. But then we also work with the providers to identify areas where there is unwanted or unnecessary care um, being provided, and then uh, help to develop strategies to uh, address those areas. Um, with more effective less costly care
2: so what's an example of of care maybe somebody doesn't want costs a lot of money but really doesn't improve their care
3: um one example of that would be um so high-tech radiology so it could be that a patient has low back pain that is relatively acute so it has not been a problem for uh, a length of time and Sometimes the, one of the first tools that's used is to send a patient for uh, an MRI or a CT scan, um, but perhaps a referral to physical therapy to determine whether, whether the low back pain can be uh, relieved by exercises would be, um, would be a more cost-effective way to manage that low back pain. So let's look for a simpler, faster remedy Exactly.
2: Maybe a little less high tech, but in the end, more effective. More effective for sure.
1: I'd like to take take a step back just for a second, and I, I tend to do this on the show. But you know, if I, I I'm listening here today, and I may not understand exactly what an accountable care organization is. So if we can just sort of start there, and um, help people understand how they actually become part of one is it something that happens to them or
3: do they choose to do this how does all that work so the way that that a a patient is becomes part of an aco is it's different by payer but for medicare it's based on frequency of care and and so where a patient most frequently receives care uh, from a primary care provider. And so a patient does have the opportunity or the option to opt out of an ACO. And that's by just talking with their provider uh, and asking for a form. There's a form that they can sign to to opt out. So does but, that
2: mean they opted, they didn't opt in, Medicare kind of put them in?
3: Correct, Medicare put them in based on their healthcare claims. Um, but But even though they have the option to opt out, there are so many benefits to a patient uh when they're part of an aco even if it's not even if it's not terribly obvious to the patient um the the providers who are part of an aco really have a commitment to um to that higher quality of care to providing that ho- higher quality of care um, and then there are for some patients there are um, additional services that are available such as a care. Such as being enrolled in a care advising program.
2: So we sometimes give Medicare a hard time because they're a large federal bureaucracy. But this sounds like maybe they're they're looking at claims data and realizing there's some additional services a patient may benefit from and enrolls them in an ACO. Now, does that mean it's going to cost them more money or is this free for them to be part of this enhanced care?
3: There's no cost at all to the patients uh, to be enrolled in an ACO
2: so they can the uh, Medicare puts them in one. They can opt to come out of it. But what are the advantages for them being in one? Cuz you started talking about some advanced illness care. What is what does that mean and how does that advantage play out for me? So if we I'm do a Medicare have, recipient.
3: Sure. So there are several there are several benefits. So as part of an ACO, um, we do lots of things like, um, so we work with the providers to identify patients who have gaps in care, and so and that's just a, um, a deviation from standard best medical practice. So an example of that would be, um, so pr- for preventive care or um, for specific diagnoses, we would have um, Um, we would identify if a patient, for example, has not had a mammogram. And so we would work with the provider to to identify those patients and to ensure that care is received. And then we also have um, care advising programs. We have a few different ones that we offer to different populations of patients. And the advanced illness care program is one of the care advising programs that Um, that is intended to serve patients and their families who have advancing or serious medical illnesses.
2: Can you give me an example of an advancing or serious? Because those are those are words I don't use every day.
3: Right. Um, So one one example would be a patient who has um, who has cancer um, or a patient who has advanced stages of congestive heart failure. So some common some diagnoses that you commonly hear, but that, that are very complicated, that require, um, that require lots of visits to the doctor, um, that require that other resources be coordinated. And with, without this program, without this advanced illness care program, it can be difficult for the families to navigate the very complicated healthcare system.
2: So you try and take all these fragmented pieces and, and knit them together to, together in a more seamless approach to care. Is that it? Or am Correct. I, yeah. I oversimplifying? So,
3: no, I don't. I don't think so. So if you if you think about um, if you think about a time that you've known somebody or that you've even had a family member with an advanced or a serious illness, it's really difficult to have conversations about what do I want, what do I not want to happen. Is there an advanced um, uh, um, an advanced directive in place that really helps my family, and um, you know, and helps my providers know what it is that I want when, um, you know, when it's time to make difficult decisions. And the purpose of the advanced illness care program is to uh, so there's a nurse that's involved that works with the family and the patient to have those discussions that are very difficult. And get those advanced directives in place, and um, you know coordinate any resources. Help the patient figure out what services are closer to home. Um, so um, just to help coordinate um, and really figure out what are the what are the patient's fears, what are the patient's goals, what do you want to happen uh, when it's time to make very difficult decisions, so that in the heat of the moment, the family is not. Um, is not left scrambling trying to figure out what you would have wanted. That voice you hear is Lori Moore. She yeah. is the senior director of
0: clinical operations for Evelyn Health, and she's working with Wake Med Key Community Care. We've also have uh, Debbie Huter here in the studio, who is the executive director of Wake Med Key Community Care. And we will continue our conversation on accountable care organizations in just a bit. You're listening to Aging Matters: Care and Comfort That Surrounds You, a service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF. Stick around. Welcome back to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. You can find more about them at transitionslifecare.org. I am Jason Kong, Nicole Bruno, and Cooper Linton. Alongside me are special guests in the studio right now. We have Lori Moore, who is the Senior Director of Clinical Operations for Evelyn Health, and she is working with WakeMed Community Care. Uh, key Community Care, excuse me, and we also have Debbie Huter, who is the Executive Director of WakeMed Key Community Care. And Cooper, we're we're going to try and dissect what that is a little bit,
2: WakeMed Key Community Care. That's a lot of words near each other. Mm-hmm. We want to figure out what they actually mean. So we have WakeMed Key Community Care. Debbie says you're the Executive Director. If you're running this, you <laughs> you're the one who has to know what this means. And why does it matter to folks that are listening tonight?
4: Well, thank you so much. So WakeMed and the key physician IPA group, which is a very large group of primary care physicians in this area, have come together and for and formed an accountable care organization, ACO, as as Lori talked about. And one of the things I want to mention about ACOs is there's over four hundred ACOs in the country. So this isn't something that is um, new. It's not something that is um, only in this area and it, it it gives the opportunity for for providers and in our case primary care physicians and hospitals to work together to have the tools that Lori's team can um, support providers in in uh, better care and and as she said cost efficiencies in the healthcare system. Why is it important for um, the listening audience is that you know we have a very fragmented system and ACOs have done a great job in bringing together providers to take care of, a, take care of their patients in a different manner. Um, through care management, through data, through tools and things like that, our physicians are able to really look at their patient populations in a different way and, and really take care of them in a different way. And so WakeMed and key physicians have have come together in this organization because they realize that doing it separately, they can't do it as well as they can do it together. Um, and so they share data among themselves. They uh, do decision making among themselves, and and the outcome is better care for the patient.
2: So when we talk about the accountable care organization. Mm-hmm. Who's accountable? If I, if I, am I the patient or caregiver? Am I the one who's accountable, or who, who's accountable for all this care?
4: So we all are. So the hospital's accountable, the physicians are accountable, and the and the patients are accountable also. And that's one thing. What an ACO tries to do is to bring those three entities, or at least, or I'll, I'll even take it a step further: the physician, the patient, and the caregiver. Mm-hmm. Those three entities together to talk about that patient's health and and um, what are the plans for that patient and and how do we how do we make sure that um, that patient is getting all of the care that they need at the right time so talk to me a little bit about you mentioned care manager so I think that may be one of the key
1: differentiators between a um or just a regular physician's practice and perhaps being part of an ACO, that sounds to me like maybe one of the benefits. Talk to me a little bit about what exactly a care manager does for these patients and how they work together with that family unit to improve the outcomes of the patient.
3: Sure. So, our care managers, we actually refer to them as care advisors at WKCC. Um, And so, our care advisors are registered nurses, and they work with patients and their families, as well as the primary care provider, to identify what the needs are. So, is it that the patient needs education about a chronic condition, or do they not understand what their medications are and and why they need to take them, or there may be um, questions about um, the right foods to eat to for a specific condition. And so, so we we work with the patient and family to identify not only what the needs are, but what's important to the patient and to the family. And then we develop a plan um, to talk on a on a regularly scheduled basis. And we have uh, goals in mind that we that we address um, and. And each time we talk, we... Um each time we talk with the patient, or or each time we visit with the patient, sometimes uh, in their home or at their provider's office, um, we provide education to the patient either in writing or verbally, uh, just depending on how the patient prefers to receive that information. Um, and then and then the the goal of that is to get the patient to um, to his or her optimal level of self management.
1: So one of the things that um, I, I liked that I heard was that you look at the patient sometimes in their home because one thing I know for sure is that These patients, a lot of times, they are at their best when they get to that doctor's office. You know, they are. They're trying to look their best. They're trying to act their best. They don't want anybody to realize that there's anything wrong with them. Oftentimes, it's the receptionist or the gatekeeper that's sitting there that actually sees, you know, really what's going on when that caregiver finally gets that loved one to take that last step to get into that waiting room. But then they kind of gather themselves back up. And when they get back into the doctor's office, they're like, oh, nope, I'm great. Everything's great at home. But, But I bet when you go into that home, you see a whole new world. You see how difficult it is to manage in that bathroom. You see, perhaps not only what they're taking for that—that's prescribed—but a whole bunch of maybe herbals and over-the-counter medications, and geez, a cluttered fall risk; those types of things. And and I'm sure that probably makes a big difference because in my work with caregivers, you know, that—that's one of their biggest concerns—is that you know what goes on in the home is so very different than what is sometimes represented in the physician's office.
3: Correct. So there, in my opinion, there is nothing like laying eyes on a patient in their home environment um, to really see um, just what you said what's really going on in the home and it's not that the patient necessarily gets to the doctor's office and um, you know and doesn't want to divulge sometimes that's the case for you know for many different reasons that they just don't want to divulge what's going on at the house but a lot of times they just don't realize necessarily you know they might not have gotten the education so um, you know they say oh i I for a diabetic, for example, they take all their all their medications and they use their insulin when they're supposed to, um, and they're eating just fine. Um, but when we go into the home and we can have the opportunity to look in a pantry, you we see, see that and yes, and... right, and Kool Aid and and that sort of thing. So um, so there's nothing like seeing that um, that home environment so that then we can can address what we're seeing um, and then and also provide that information. Back to the provider.
1: So what helps you make a decision about who you're going to go see in the home?
3: We have uh, a couple of different ways that we do that. So we have a tool that identifies patients based on based on their um, healthcare um their diagnoses on health care claims, how frequently they've been in the emergency department or the hospital. And then we also work with our with the providers who are part of the ACO to identify which patients are most likely to benefit from a care management program.
1: That's wonderful.
2: So when we talk with patients and families, one of the things we hear often is I don't want to go back to the E.R., I don't want to go back to the hospital particularly if they're seeing their illness progress. One of the other things we're hearing is I wish all the parts of my medical care would talk to each other because I have a primary care doctor and I have three specialists and then there was these uh, there were these other two doctors I talked to in the hospital and I don't even remember their names. How do you how do you knit all that together?
4: So that's really the benefit of an ACO and and that's, that's kind of the, the, the basis of it is that that knitting of the specialist with the primary care with the hospital, that we get them talking to each other, we get them sharing patient information. Um, and that's why that's a, that's a big driver of why physicians actually join an ACO because they know that, the ACO will give them the tools that they can they can actually share patient information among each other. So, and that's part of the cost that we're trying to drive out of the system is that duplicative, cost of going to see a specialist and having having a medicine you know prescribed by a specialist than a, than a med prescribed by a primary care and one doesn't talk to the other, so there could be some adverse outcomes at that point. So. Um, that's the benefit of, a, of an ACO, our providers working together.
2: And that includes, it sounds like it includes the pharmacist from what you're describing.
4: Pharmacy is a big part of this. And that's the other part of an ACO is we look at pharmacy data too. And we can see if a patient has not uh, refilled their prescription. And that's another part that care managers reach out to or the health advisors reach out to. And, and sometimes there's a lot of socioeconomic issues that are going on. They don't have the funds for, to refill their prescriptions. They don't have transportation to get to the, to, the, um, to the pharmacy. And those are all the things that the ACO can help them with.
0: And Debbie, if folks want to find more information about WakeMed Key Community Care, what's the best way to do that?
4: The best thing to do is to look online and go to www.wakemedkeycc.org. And um, that's our website. And that should be able to give you all the information that you need on what an ACO is, who we are, and what we do.
0: Perfect. That's WakemedKeycc. .org if you want more information, Debbie Huter and Lori Moore, thank you so much for joining us this evening. We really appreciate you giving us some time here.
4: Thank you. Thank
0: you. You are listening to Aging Matters, Care and Comfort that Surrounds You, a Service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF. Stick around. Welcome back to Aging Matters Care and Comfort that surrounds you. A service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF. Jason Kong here, alongside Nicole Bruno and Cooper Linton. Wanna remind everyone, if you want to get a hold of us, shoot us an email. You can do so by emailing Aging Matters at transitionslifecare.org that's aging matters at transitionslifecare.org Well Cooper uh, before we started the show we were going over a list of things that we wanted to talk about and as usual I, uh, I had no idea what any of them meant uh, so let's start with home-based and community-based care uh, that's that's the first topic that we had down and I don't know what that is can you explain that to me?
2: Well, it's essentially care that is not in a facility. And if you think back, this is the way we used to care for people years ago. We took care of folks at home. And then assisted livings and nursing homes emerged, rehab facilities emerged. We've had hospitals. We have long-term acute care hospitals. We have lots of options for care, and they all have their place. They do an excellent job. But the one thing we hear most often is I want to be home. I want to be in my home, with my family. Um, and the data's coming out to strongly support the outcomes of that but it certainly has an implication for caregivers. And we have a guest today who has a unique perspective on this. Um, Dr. David Fisher, who is with Doctors Making House Calls, has joined us this evening. He is a family physician. He's also a geriatrician. He's also board-certified in hospice and palliative medicine. He's an author of a book, an all-around swell fella. Uh, (laughs) Because I don't think anybody uses the term swell fella anymore except for me. My son's informed me that I'm... Antiquated. Well, he he gave me an autographed book. I mean, he's a, he, he is a swell fella. That's right. a good way See, to describe. If it. you say it now, it's cool because there's an age difference between us, <laughs> Jason.
1: I think he might be beast.
2: Oh, <laughs> Nicole's bringing back beast.
0: Dr. Fisher, this is, uh, yeah. this is the apparently the new term that everyone is using. It's, it's good beast. to be here.
5: My kids would say I'm lit. <laughs> yeah. uh, what are you but, drinking this evening? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I love how these words change over time. <laughs> when the first time I heard that, I thought the same thing you thought. Um, what have you been into? When I was in college <laughs> so and somebody lit. was lit. Right, yeah. Well, They weren't it, safe to drive. It has changed, so... Uh, but uh, yes, I'm a parent of, of teens myself, and uh, uh, baseball parent. I have a 17 year old who plays high school ball. So you just wait; you're you still. It gets even more intense. Good times you know. coming. Yes, yes. Uh, but it's great to be here. Yes, I'm with uh, doctors making house calls uh, here in the Triangle, and consider myself a house That's my specialty. But uh, yeah, I have a background in geriatrics, and that's majority of our patients are older, but the practice serves any age. Uh, someone who wants to have care in their home, they can have a doctor uh, come to the house and there's a lot we can do in the home now. Uh, of course, this is the way, like you said, we used to provide care years ago and uh, it's making a comeback. So it's it's pretty exciting.
2: So why is it making a comeback? I mean, you just coined that term housecologist. I'm not even sure I said that correctly, but you know, <laughs> Why is that making such a comeback? I have my own opinions about it. I want to hear yours.
5: Sure. Well, there's a few reasons. Probably the biggest is cost, uh, but patient preference is another big reason. You talked about the institutions, hospitals, nursing homes, assisted living, etc., and they all do an excellent job, but like you said, there's no place like home, and people prefer to be in the comfort of their own home. Uh We do see the incredible cost that institutions incur to provide good care for people. And so there's a huge cost reduction when you can provide care in the home. So it's less costly and patients prefer it. But we also now have a lot of technology that allows us to bring care to the home that maybe we couldn't do years ago. And so I can have uh, x-rays done on my patient in the home. I can have blood drawn. Uh, ultrasounds. There's a lot of diagnostic things we can do. I also have at my fingertips with an iPad uh, access to all their medical records from hospitals and other places. And so uh, there's an incredible amount now that we can bring to the home. And uh, one reason, another reason I like it as a geriatrician is you really get to see what's actually going on with your patients. Uh, Because I have a number of patients who do also like to use the word swell because they're from a much older generation. Uh, but they tend to think often of coming to the doctor as an event, like they're going to get dressed up and, yep. you know, tell the doctor everything's going fine. And then I come into the home and say, oh, maybe things aren't going well, so that's fine. A good there, yeah. yeah.
1: One of the things I think, you know, sometimes we have a little bit of a... Um, incorrect lens in the triangle area here there seems to be just so many assisted living communities and nursing homes and independent Mm -hmm. living communities but once you start getting to the outer regions of the area most people really are cared for in the home and you know we were talking a little bit about offline about how you know if if you're admitted to the hospital chances are years ago you would have been in the ICU if you're in a nursing home chances are you would have been in the hospital if you're currently in assisted living chances are you would have been in a nursing home and and if you are in independent living chances are you would have been in assisted living so we are having much more complex patients in the home you know rural or not and in the more rural areas there's less resources and support how are you seeing that impacting the caregiver
5: well the uh, the the practice is expanding like you mentioned the triangle and, and doctors making house calls started in the triangle it has expanded across the state now and we are seeing patients in more rural communities as well and the caregivers often do feel isolated, especially when there's not a, a geographically uh, accessible resource. Um, and I, I know for, for my patients, the caregivers greatly appreciate having somebody come into the home to really get a picture because it's often that case of you don't even know the right questions to ask. Or, you know, I can pick up on something that, patient or caregiver might not have even thought of and so uh, we are though unfortunately seeing higher acuity moving downstream in terms of these levels of care where where somebody maybe was kept in the hospital for two weeks to recover from pneumonia now they're only there for three days and they're either discharged maybe to a rehab facility for a couple days but often sent right home and there's discharge instructions and paperwork and all these things that I see a lot of um, information slip through the cracks and so a caregiver is left often on their own and I'll see something like you know follow up with your doctor in two weeks but there's a lot that can happen in those two weeks coming out of the hospital and so we as a practice make it a uh, a policy to follow up with our patients within 48 hours after they're discharged from the hospital to look at all the medications, anything that might have changed, etc. But yeah, so much more is falling on the caregiver to understand what's going on and, and have a lot more medical knowledge, which they may or may not have.
0: Our guest is Dr. David Fisher with Doctors Making House Calls, and we'll continue our conversation on home based care in just a bit. You're listening to Aging Matters, Care and Comfort That Surrounds You, here on News Radio 680 WPTF. You're listening to News Radio 680 WPTF. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. You can dive into more about them at transitionslifecare.org. I'm Jason Kong, Nicole Bruno over there, Cooper Linton over here. And our guest today is Dr. David Fisher with Doctors Making House Calls. And uh, we're talking about home-based care and the uh, the impact that that has. And, Cooper, we're going to transition a little bit. Uh, no pun intended there. But we're going to talk about how that, uh, that impacts
2: caregivers. Well, before the break, Dr. Fisher was talking about how we've moved more care home. We're able to do more things at home. There's a lot of technology that's available in the home that if you dial the clock back 10 years, really wasn't available. But it has an impact on the people who are at home taking care of a loved one because the acuity level of that patient at home has gone up.
1: You know, I'm working with a caregiver right now who, oh my goodness, you know, it's the similar story that you were just telling the pneumonia in and out of the hospital through three times in the last month with pneumonia because comes home, family's desperately trying to provide the support. They don't necessarily have the, the income to bring in 24-7 care, but they're also trying to work and they're trying to provide support. And off she goes back to the hospital and off they come back. And, you know, a couple of things that are going on with the caregivers are losing their confidence in their ability to provide their loved one. They're feeling guilty about not being able to do what they feel like they need to do. And then, you know, they're, you know, and then when they go to the hospital, the hospital sometimes looks at, looks at them like, you know, you didn't follow the plan of care, why does she keep coming back? And then you, and then, you know, we at Transitions Guiding Lights provide resources and connect them, but they're so overwhelmed that even though we're providing direct connections, sometimes they don't even follow up with the resources that would provide the support that they need to keep them out of the hospital. So that's what we're seeing. What do you see? I think
5: overwhelmed is the best term. Uh, This can be completely overwhelming. And when you think about somebody who's in a facility, uh, you're employing three people full time doing eight hour shifts to care for that person. So for one or two people at home who first of all aren't trained and are learning this on the fly and two have other jobs and other responsibilities to take care of, it's just so much to ask of someone. And I tell people all the time, you know, it, it it has nothing to do with how much you care about that person. Sometimes it's just humanly impossible to, to do everything. And so you need to bring in those additional resources. Uh, but what one thing that frustrates me about our current system is um, the way things have trended and I have nothing against hospitalists and hospital medicine, but we have seen this rise of the hospital doctor and it's just the nature of the way our system is now. I think they do an excellent job. They're very skilled at what they do at taking care of people in the hospital, but it's not somebody who knows you. And then when you discharge home, it's hand off back to the primary care doctor. And a lot of it can be lost in that transition. And so if you don't have a, a community doctor, a primary care doctor who's really on top of things and helping guide you through this, you really can feel like a ship lost at sea. You're, you just can't, you don't know what's coming next.
2: I think you bring up a, a valuable point. We have, historically, we had a doctor that knew us longitudinally. Right, And it wasn't uncommon for a physician to treat multiple generations with the same family or multiple persons within that family. And so they understood the dynamic within that house or households. Now that there are these separate hospitalists, a medical director at a nursing facility, um, multiple physicians involved, sometimes that's great, but it also means that the caregiver is often the one that's now trying to knit all these disparate pieces together. They become the point of continuity as opposed to sharing that role of continuity with the physician. And I personally think that leads to part of this sense of being overwhelmed. And the caregivers who I talk with talk about, I feel like everything's fragmented and I'm trying to pull all the pieces together. I don't think that's just a sensation I think that's their reality Uh,
5: yes I think the caregiver does often become the advocate the point person who has to coordinate all of this and it is absolutely overwhelming when you're talking about coordinating specialist visits and getting back and forth transportation uh you know are all the medicines correct and you know uh when do I call the doctor when do I not call the doctor what, what are the key things I need to be looking for for a potential, do we need to go back to the hospital? Do I need to call 911? You know, all those questions. And of course, you're going to err on the side of caution. Uh, I would say there are many, many hospitalizations and re-hospitalizations that are preventable with a little bit of early intervention, whether it's, you know, someone with congestive heart failure who starts to go toward an exacerbation. And there are some signs, but... You know, they maybe weren't picked up in time. you got to jump on
2: it while the time is is available. Otherwise, you're in the ER.
5: Right. And that's one of the things we pride ourselves on, is keeping people out of the emergency room and out of the hospitals. Now, if they need to go, they go. We don't withhold that from them. But um, we have demonstrated, actually, in our practice, a significant reduction in ER visits and hospitalizations. Um, And thankfully... Uh, it's not just our practice. Uh, Medicare is waking up to this to some degree. They're seeing the cost savings. That's their language, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we've been part of a demonstration project called Independence at Home, which has it's part of the uh, the healthcare law, uh, Obamacare, uh, that uh, allowed us and some other practices throughout the country to demonstrate what we do and we have shown a lot of data has been collected we have shown reduction in cost and a reduction in hospitalizations and er visits which are some of the things that matter to medicare of course but matter to patients and families
2: as well well we often phrase this as in we're saving money and the reality is when people are healthier when they are more well they have a higher level of wellness they are maintained at home where they want to live it is secondarily cheaper to do that. It's less expensive when people aren't as sick. And if we can keep them at home, they're better off.
5: Yeah. An ounce of prevention worth a pound of cure. And, you know, more expensive care doesn't necessarily mean better care. (laughs) It just, you know, you want to avoid having to have a lot of money spent on you in terms of health care. You'd like to keep that at a lower cost if you can for a lot of reasons. So, and again, we're not withholding. If people need expensive care, you know, they get it. But there are many things that happen that maybe could have been avoided, especially in the older population.
1: You know, one of the things that scares me to death is, you know, we sit here as talking heads talking about people working in industry, the silver tsunami, it's coming, it's coming. All these baby boomers are getting older and they're going to start to need care. And clearly demonstrated by the fact that we've moved from two caregiver summits to four, you know, and they're filling up rapidly and and it's just exploding. You know, we we have a really big um, crisis on our hands as far as being able to find direct care workers, people who are actually going to be able to physically provide this care for individuals who are going to need it because not everybody's cut out to do this work. And what I'm seeing is that families who don't have the financial means to provide this physical care for mm-hmm. their loved ones, even temporarily, mm-hmm. ha- don't have the financial resources necessarily to pay to have someone to do it. But even if they do, mm-hmm. these these agencies that provide these resources can't find workers to actually do the work. Yeah. And so I'm wondering you know, if there are some conversations at the level of the physicians of sort of of how are we going to handle this this group of people that we know is coming if there's no stopping it we're getting older every single day god knows i know every time i stand up i feel it right you know what are we going to do
5: well we believe obviously our practice that home care is going to be a big part of that and hopefully the system is going to be set up to accommodate more and more care in the home mean, the way we operate, we're not a concierge practice, but we do charge an out-of-pocket trip fee when someone comes to the house. That's really the only difference between us and a regular practice. Um, but that is a cost for people to, to incur. Uh, we're hoping that there will be more and more financial support for more doctors to do this because another big pro of home care is doctors like it. And nurse practitioners and PAs in our practice Love doing what we do because it's an opportunity to you get to know them. To you get, get to, to spend know the more than ten and, minutes, <laughs> and that's why I went to med school. You know, it wasn't to uh, you know fill out a whole bunch of forms all day long. It was to <laughs> it wasn't to maximize the
2: twelve-minute encounter. you <laughs> Believe actually wanted it or to help not, patients
5: there wasn't even a class on that in medical school. Believe <laughs> it or not, uh, that's right. But unfortunately, that's where so much of outpatient medicine has gone, and so. You know, my average house call is an hour long because I can I need to talk to the patient, the family, the caregiver, you know, and and I love it. So uh, we hope more and more it is going to get back to that getting to know your patient, having that person that knows all the dynamics because they're all very different.
0: Dr. David Fisher, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, This was a a great conversation, and uh, I know you've been on with us in the past, and we we really thank you for your time and coming out tonight.
5: It's been my pleasure, and thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. Again, that website, if you're interested in finding more information about them, DoctorsMakingHouseCalls.com. It's very simple. I'm sure you could Google that as well. Phone number is 919-932-5700. And we did mention Dr. Fisher's book, which is How to Keep Mom and Yourself out of a nursing home. Again, you can find that on Amazon or you can Google it. I'm sure there are probably a couple other bookstores that carry it as well. Thank you so much for joining us this Saturday evening. We hope to catch you again next Saturday at 7 for Aging Matters, Care and Comfort that Surrounds You on News Radio 680 WPTF.